0: Hey, Mike. Hey, Caroline. Who are we talking to today?
1: We're talking to Damon Krukowski, indie rock legend of Damon and Naomi, of uh, the Ways of Hearing podcast, and of Galaxy 500 fame. Awesome. Yeah, let's get to it. Damon, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you value your work when when you're working on something new. Um, how do you measure the success of it? Because you just released a beautiful new album, and you've been making albums for a long time. But how do you how do you measure the success of something new these days?
2: Wow, what a great question! Thank you. Thanks for listening to the record. I don't know how does anybody. I don't know how we do anymore. <laughs> it's a big it's a big uh, question. I mean, especially during COVID, this has been really weird for me and Naomi. Because, I mean, for everybody, I think has gone through various versions of this. You sort of usually um, it's really going out and meeting people on the road and performing where you get that kind of sense of some kind of reflection back of, of what you've been doing and how it sits with people. And, you know, you get to sing the songs in person and sort of look into people's eyes and see what, how, what connects and what doesn't or how it's different than you thought. And we, we haven't had that obviously. So we've just been home and it's been really, really strange um, uh, so it's been actually, you know, come to think of it. Um, I hadn't put this together in my head before, but it's been more like when I've released a book that I've written where there's this weird, like one way thing that can happen. Uh, first time I published a book, I got really depressed afterwards because it was just like this so much buildup, up, you know, for me. Um, and then it just like went out. And this is a book of, of, prose poems mm. wasn't and not nonfiction. And, um, really I just went out in the world. It was like, well, you know, how do I know if anybody ever read this, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's so weird, <laughs> like books are so silent. Yeah. And I'm, and at the time I was thinking, oh, it's not like music, like music has this amazing satisfaction when you go out and you perform and, and you get that moment back. But this time we didn't. So, you know, it is a little like, it is a little, bit, a little bit depressing in that way of like it was when I published a book of poems. Like, oh, man.
1: That's interesting. I mean, because there's a beautiful moment on your podcast, um, Ways of Hearing, where you talk about where uh, you and Naomi are going to the former Yugoslavia, and you've, you, you talk about how your music reached this land before you even uh, arrived there. And with COVID, your, your music is reaching all these people, but you're not arriving anywhere.
2: Yeah, that's so well put. That's exactly it. Because until we got there, who would think, you know, I was, and I'm not the type of person that's like, yeah, I know my music's got to be hot in (laughs) Belgrade. You know, we've never, we're we're not those kind of people. We just assume no one listens. And we're always surprised when people do, like I was surprised you even mentioned the record. So we're always surprised happily when people have, have heard it or received it. So yeah, it did take us physically going really far that time and i mean we love traveling so that's been another weird thing about the last two years and part of it has always been this amazing you do make connections and and you discover connections that you've made long distance through your work i mean that's the real gift of um music and of recording the real magic of it and of digital i mean that that's in that ways of hearing i think i was kind of making the case that um you know, digital is not all bad, you know, because I can get that reputation sometimes, like people assume that's what I'm saying. And it's not at all, like it's a miracle when you can go somewhere. And in that case, there were no record stores. It was, I mean, I've been thinking about Yugoslavia today because of what's going on in Ukraine. Mm. And when we were there, it was just shortly after the conflicts there had ended. And so, you know, there was really very little in the street. And there were no record stores. I mean, the idea of like our record having gotten there was was absurd. But digitally, it got there. Because digitally, you know, everything can get most anywhere. Um, even we went to China, which was a real amazing experience. And there the internet is so severely controlled that it was a moment where we thought, oh, maybe our music didn't get here at all because of of that. And then we tapped into a little scene of, sort of hipsters who have all these ways around the controls, you know, they use VPNs, which are illegal there. You can actually like be arrested for using a VPN. Yeah. But um, they had access and they were fully versed in all the latest pitchfork releases, you know, wow. you know? <laughs> but, but I mean, it took a lot for them to do that. That's cool. You know, it took like a friend would go to Hong Kong and come back with a program that let them, You know, break out out of the Chinese wall and all that stuff. Really complicated. Mm. So anyway, just more stories about you know, music does travel, and that's a gift. But yeah, it's been very strange this time, and and we don't know how to evaluate our work ever. Kind of, I mean, sales have never really cut it for us. um, In that, you know, the times we have had sales, it didn't feel particularly connected to our own feeling of satisfaction or success. And then other times we've had great like yeah this time really worked you know and it's just like total flop so so it goes both ways where the sales just don't quite reflect your feelings one way or the other so we don't really use that and then reviews can be very satisfying i find when they're well written and 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 from the heart so that can mean a lot actually um because you feel someone really connecting to it but but just in terms of column inches or where it appears that doesn't do it either. Cause sure. it can be, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird thing, but the best thing is meeting people. It really is. So yeah, we're kind of lonely here right now. <laughs> 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 How's Nashville? Have, are people coming through town again to perform?
0: It's starting up for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are a lot of shows that get canceled last minute, Yeah. but, um, yeah, it's, it's, Easing back into full fledged hotspot again. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you'd you'd be hard
1: pressed to even think that there a pandemic even happened here. Sometimes, if you go downtown, yeah. yeah I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've seen all the horrible pictures of like Kid Rock's honky tonk where <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> he's packing like 800 people and seriously uh, yeah, on Broadway. On Is Broadway, he ever- oh, yeah, he's, man. he's everybody has one. <laughs>
0: yeah, it, and that's an interesting uh, observation on like. The music industry at this point, all of these, I mean, Broadway is basically lined with bars uh, and venues owned by country music stars. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's just, and then their music kind of starts to reflect their need to sell beer and liquor Uh, in their venue. So all these songs about tequila shots or whiskey (laughs) drinks or whatever, you know, and you get people singing them in there and then you get people lined up at the bar and it's sort of a a machine at that point yeah the music
1: is just another way to make money Mm -hmm. um it's just another way to sell what they're trying to sell which is beer
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) right yeah there's well you know we have naomi and i have actually been told by venue owners that our fans don't drink enough (laughs) (laughs) we have been flat out reproached for it you know and it never occurred to me that we just changed the songs we write but yeah that could be i've, I've mentioned whiskey in a song you know yeah. come on that costs more than a beer usually at a bar. i would love to hear like a beautiful
1: slow elegiac ode to jim beam or something like that
3: yeah you know?
2: yeah, yeah exactly well there's yeah, a market our, for that yeah half our songs are, are tears in your beer kind of song yeah. but, but um but um but yeah exactly yeah but for whatever reason our fans don't fit the profile of the you know they don't drink enough right to satisfy <laughs> our fans are probably like nursing the one drink yeah. know, all <laughs> evening so
0: what are they emotionally healthy or something yes, exactly yeah.
1: <laughs> but you know what's yeah. weird though too about where we are with um it doesn't really matter the size of your band but every band is kind of asked to start their own little like bodega online Mm. where it's like they're selling mugs and scarves and yeah uh, t-shirts and it doesn't matter how cool the designs are but it it starts Mm -hmm. to feel like everyone needs to have this own their own little like uh uh mini walmart you know in their garage it's weird right
2: yeah it is crazy i mean it's something um, naomi does the merch for us and we have a long-standing division about that because I was I was anti T-shirt, which is really <laughs> not a smart attitude to strike right. if you're in a rock band. But I I, I came across that. I mean, I, I was anti T-shirt back all the way back in Galaxy 100 Days, which was mm. absurd. But <laughs> I got, I used to get really down about it because we'd finish a gig and we'd be counting up the money and it was all about the T-shirt sales. And I remember saying to the band like, I didn't. We're not doing this to sell t-shirts mm. but of course that is how you get paid and naomi was always really into the t-shirts because she's a designer and she loves yes. um making nice objects and and she chose she designed like our very first one which we still sell actually and then she like asked people she liked designs from to do ones for us and so they were always special and she always took a great deal of pleasure in it which is one thing but i was still like i just can't believe like it's all about the t-shirt sales. So then when we were on our own after gas 100 i was like okay we're on our own no more t-shirts right and the owner's like no we're making t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah so she runs that entirely on her own cuz i've been i've been i'm like no help. And yeah. she'll <laughs> say like well do you want this or this and i'm like you know me i want neither. Yeah. And she's like, why am I even asking you of those? Forget it. Just, no, would, you go to the, would you go to the post office? I'm like, yeah, I'll go to the post
1: office. I was listening to this interview uh, with Mark Lanigan uh, like two nights ago when he died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not very familiar with his work. I just wanted to hear him talk. Um, mm-hmm. And he was talking about, this was two years ago, he was talking about... Um, he never sold a lot of records anyway, but he started selling records um, when he sat down at the merch table. Like uh, mm-hmm. in the last like four or five years, he started selling merch and he started was able to make money for the first time. And you would think that a person that came through like the whole '90s, where there mm-hmm. was money everywhere in the record industry, would be a millionaire.
2: Mm -hmm. but
1: you know he's still like learning like the way that our local bands are learning in the natural scene yeah that you have to have merch and
2: interact with people (laughs) yeah and actually be at the table that's (laughs) pretty amazing i wonder if he just didn't ever did it himself you know he's had people doing it yeah and and uh i mean he certainly did he must have seen money of sizable amounts at various moments in his life yeah. But of course there are lots of ways to spend or lose it or yes, get rid of it. Too. That's true. <laughs> and, um, and uh, yeah, but it, but it is. Yeah. Being actually at the merch table again, this is the thing that I mean, I have this division of, cause I've always been anti t-shirt and, and um, she's really friendly and we'll go to the merch table. Always like talk to people and everything. But then I learned that that was really important. And it turned out to be really important to me, too, to get back to your original question, which was, it is a moment where you really get to meet people and, and they get to say something back to you. So it's not this one-way thing of like, I got on stage, I came to town, I said everything I wanted to say on mic, and then I go backstage and I disappear and go to the next town and say everything on mic again. And you know, the merch table is a moment when people, they, it's their t- time to talk to you. And we've had amazing exchanges at the merch table. And so I learned that even though I hate selling t-shirts, I do like hanging out at the merch table. So um, we make it a point. I have a good story about that, which is um, we were on tour one time in Spain, just the two of us. And um, Naomi got horribly sick from from eating um, a tortilla de espanol. You know what that is? It's like an egg. I don't um, know. A tortilla de espanol is a, uh, like an, like an omelette. A frittata, if you ever had a frittata. Oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's like an egg omelette, uh, usually filled with potato. And it's like bar snack on every single bar in Spain. And they sit out, of course. You know, you don't refrigerate things so much in Europe. And um it was she ate a piece of, of tortilla español like at a truck stop on our way to the next gig. And by the time we got to the gig, she was she was so violently ill, like it terrified me actually. And um but she's a trooper, and she did the show. End of the show, she can't quite finish the last song. Disappears off stage. She'd be just like, so sick. Mm-hmm. And I go running after to find her. Like, are you okay? Are you okay? And she's, in the, she's in the toilets and she's turning around saying to me, sell the merch. Because <laughs> 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 the show is over. It was like, yeah. someone's got to be out there. Yeah. And she usually does that. And I, our division when we're alone is I pack up all the equipment so she can run out and sell the merch because someone's got to be in those two places. Yeah. And I hate selling the merch. So usually she goes straight out and I'm on stage packing up and like chatting with the sound people. And instead she was in the toilets and I, she was like, sell the merch. <laughs> so I had to go out and sell the merch, you know, worried that Naomi was like blacking out. <laughs> I kept being like, I'll be right back. You know, go running back in. That's amazing. Be alive? Yeah. Anyway, it is crucial. It is crucial. But those moments are really important. And, and um, it's something I've thought a lot about just in terms of digital and online life of a musician, that there are these aspects that you can't reproduce or that we have trouble really figuring out how to. And the merch table is one. I mean, I've often thought about this and discussed it with Naomi too. It's, it's like, how do you recreate that online? Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing where you really, you know, I mean, there's social media and it has aspects of it, but it also is wildly different um, because it's not one-to-one. And it's very hard to recreate the kind of informal accidental interactions that can happen, that happen in analog, you know, space and time. And uh, online, I mean, this is the thing I think that digital just is really bad at. So in terms of like touring, you know, there was all this, um, people tried all these online versions of shows oh, this is one reason why we had this long conversation about how do we recreate the merch table. Naomi and I did a digital show during lockdown. We did one performance. This local museum asked us if we would perform in a space that they owned and film it, and they put it online. And we said yes, and and it was um, like our one opportunity to play our new songs kind of for people during this lockdown. And they hired a film crew and everything, so it was like a good opportunity for us with resources. And and we were, like, racking our brains, like, how do we recreate the merch table? Because it's like, okay, we can do the show, right? But how do we do the merch table? And we had all these ideas. At one point, we had the idea we were actually going to have a merch table. And, like, the camera would come over to them. <laughs> 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 i trying all these things. So, like, not to sell stuff, but to recreate the kinds of encounters that happen there. Mm. And we talked to the curator there about it. And finally we we came up with this idea that he would interview us off camera, but totally informally, like without a set of questions and um, and that there'd be filming and that we would keep it very and unrehearsed and uh, you know, more or less spontaneous as much as we could manage. And then we'd weave that into the show. So we did that.
3: Mm.
2: And that the the but the reason we did it was precisely that. It was like, The question was, um, the theoretical question was, how do we have a virtual merch table uh, engagement with people? I don't know if it worked, but that was the idea. (laughs) Yeah.
0: People want that connection with the artist, that moment to speak to them.
2: Absolutely. And frankly, and really, we need it too. We really need it. You know, I mean, some people don't, you know, like it's interesting to hear about Mark Lanigan. Like maybe he never wanted that, or maybe he had an issue with it. And then he came to it later, yeah. Uh, which I I can understand, um, but it is—it's very rewarding. It's highly, highly rewarding um, to hear from people. You know.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's something that I don't know if you tweeted this, but um, it's hard to curate the the digital what your digital collection. I think mm-hmm. that was you, right? A few, mm-hmm. Maybe a few I, weeks I, ago. Uh,
2: yeah. I often think about that too because
1: yeah. that's the thing that a, a, a site like Bandcamp lacks Mm -hmm. it's like when you come over my house i get to show you my cool records and my books Mm -hmm. and all the stuff Mm -hmm. that i've you know uh think that is that that represents me but uh, it's hard to like uh invite someone to do that online Mm um you know it it, you're just scrolling through little like tiny uh, pictures of album covers and things like that and none of it really makes sense and Mm so um the record becomes the 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 value of the record becomes a little bit diminished even if it is um, the same content uh, you know what I mean it's like totally it's it, yeah. it's weird
2: it is really weird and and there's certainly I found it strange sometimes when I visit younger friends houses and they don't have books and records that I can look at because of you know my generation anyway we definitely use that as a shorthand. Uh, by way of introduction, I mean, it's just totally... Yeah, like, who's cool and who's not cool? Yeah, there's that. <laughs> and then it's also, like... And it's conversation starters, and it's also this just sort of, sort of un- explanation of, like, what you value... Yes, um, right, exactly. Like there's that the great, world, like, what's in your
1: house? There's that great John Waters quote, you know, if he doesn't have books in his house, don't fuck him, you know? <laughs> oh, yes,
2: exactly. Yeah, John Waters is amazing that way. Did you see that? Yeah, that might even be... I I read that quote too, but yeah. he wrote a whole book about his favorite, his favorite writers. Did, mm. did you ever see that? No, no, I haven't. Oh, it's a- really good. He's really great at talking about other artists. You know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. And his, he's a real fan. Yes, he is. You know? And, and then it's interesting how, of course, he's the object of people's obsessive uh, fandom. Yeah. And that, that makes sense because it kind of, it's like a two way to get back to the merch table. It really is two way. Um, Although some stars, of course, don't treat it that way, but it really, anyway, it can be, and I think it is actually in practice for a lot of people. I mean, our our scene that we came up in in the mid to late '80s um, was very that way because um, there was a there was a kind of aesthetic at the time. It was cool not to be dressed for the show mm-hmm. like as a performer. Yeah. It was cool like. It was cool not to have makeup on, you know, it was like, there was a whole dress down thing, but it wasn't just dressed down. It was also, you should look just like you're in the audience. Like you just get up on stage and play and then you get back in the audience and Mm. you're part of the crowd. It was very punk that way. I mean, even if you did dress like the punks, of course, dressed to the nines, but the audience and the, and the performers were dressed the same way. There was a mirroring all the time. And in our scene, it was like very kind of like their story and, and, um, dressed down. It's still that it was, way. Yeah. I guess, it's, I guess that has stuck a bit, yeah. But on the other hand, I see performers are much less shy now about, you know, making a show and being on stage and like having mm. their outfit, like change. It, like there was a whole thing of don't change between soundcheck and the performance. Like that wasn't cool. Right. You know, it was like whatever you showed up in a soundcheck, it's like you stick with that. Yeah. And then there was a moment where people sort of started changing a little in the dressing room and and um getting a little bit more like I'm on stage now, which makes sense. But now, you know, some artists really go to go go wild. Mm-hmm. And and that can be very I don't think that's considered uncool by a lot of people. But anyway, but but the ethic was, um, I mean, aside from fashions, I think the ethic was the audience and the performers are the same. I mean, that was always the the scene we came up in, like beat happening, was a great example. Are you guys yeah. into
1: beat happening? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, course. good.
2: Yeah. So they were a great example of that. And then they even switched instruments on stage, you know, this kind of informality of like, well, it could be anybody. And, and then literally like when your turn was done on stage, you'd get off and watch the other band from the floor. It was very much like, that's what we're all doing. Mm. And that, that has stuck, I think with me and Naomi, that it's always been, we haven't been so comfortable being, um, like you walk out from the wings and it's this whole, you know, and then you disappear back in the wings kind of thing. But in the nineties um, that did happen a lot because of course bands got big and you can't do that at a certain point for all kinds of reasons. Um, I mean, if you get really big, you can't just step up from the stage or when you get off a stage, it's too complicated. Um, and I, there was this whole sort of remove that happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that has stuck in a lot of the music industry ever since, even though times have changed so drastically. But like festivals, for example, it's rare, I think, that backstage and front of house mingle at festivals because the entrances are totally different and security is so extreme. And, um, and sometimes there can be actually no way from one side to the other.
3: Right, you know, because, right.
2: And and that, I, I've, I was, that always grates with me. I always find that really... Um, still, I still don't feel that's cool. I don't know.
3: Yeah. Something I agree. about it.
2: Yeah. But I can imagine Mark Lannigan. When, I mean, when, when things were huge for him at various moments, um, he would be backstage, you know, I mean, we've, we've toured with bands who are like that and they just want to be backstage. Mm-hmm. Like there's a world that's built backstage that is comfortable for them and protecting them. And they're cocooned in, and then, if things are involved like drugs and stuff, then that's all happening in this little bubble, mm-hmm. and um, and they don't want to venture out, you yeah. know. Um, and that's always been depressing to us. I mean, we've been on tours where it's harder to venture out because we were opening for a bigger band, and and then it's just like, oh my god, this is so boring, <laughs> you know, just so because the backstage is always the same. Yeah, it's always the same. and that's actually the goal of that whole world, which is that your workspace has been a way you wanted it to be designed same things on the rider every night people get upset if it's not the same you know mm-hmm. and because it's like keeping keeping everything the same everything the same
0: well, it's very obvious to me that uh your connection with music and your value of music is the human connection part of it um, what we like to talk about Here is uh what you think about the relationship between art and music and money and if there is if they go together if they don't um I would love to hear your thoughts on that
2: yeah I think that of course they always go together especially in our culture money goes with everything right (laughs) but at the same time I think it's really I think it's it's random I feel like the connections are random I mean that's been my experience in that i'm i mean other people would have a very different reply i'm sure um but my own experience my personal experience is that when we make money from our art or from our music it seems random like uh and then when we when we calculate and we really try and we're like yeah it doesn't work anyway or it's unpredictable anyway so it isn't like you're really in control um, it does feel way, way more chaotic. and um, but it happens, but it happens like in these unpredictable ways. like here's here's a, a specific example. Galaxy 500, um, the biggest payday we ever got was for um, 30 seconds of an instrumental track from our first record that was used for a Honda commercial. And we were paid more for that Honda commercial. Than all the royalties for all our record sales combined. Wow. Now footnote, we were ripped off for all our record sales, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but that's not uncommon. <laughs> right. you know, that's another one of these ways that it's like, yeah, good luck with that. I mean, yeah, you, you maybe you sold records, maybe you didn't, but whether you actually got paid for that, that's a whole other, you know, set of circumstances. So we hadn't been paid really fairly or accurately for our record sales, but you know, That being said, I mean, Honda paid us, and it was like, oh, my God, that's crazy, you know, because we didn't do anything to earn it. I mean, zero. The band was broken up already. Um, It was 30 seconds, literally, of an instrumental track, no lyrics, no melody. It was, uh, I mean, the song is just called instrumental, for God's sake. (laughs) It has no, you know, we didn't feel any, I'll speak for myself, I didn't feel any compunction licensing it. Mm. Because it wasn't like, oh, you know, it's like Tugboat or something in there. Mm. And and like AT&T has a new phone called Tugboat. And they're going yeah. to, you know. That would be horrible. And we're, I can and see that like, happening. Yeah. And we're like giving up, you know, we're giving up some kind of association with our lyric. It was yeah. none of that. It was like really like 30 seconds of a, of a throwaway track as far as I'm concerned. It was album filler, literally. Mm. Um, because we thought we were making an EP. And then it turned out we had almost enough for an album. And we're like. We'll throw on that one that we mm. 30 seconds, band was broken up. Nobody solicited it. You know, it was just like a phone call came one day. Mm-hmm. Now contrast that with like years of just like killing ourselves on the road and, you know, getting at, at each other's throats personally. I mean, like all this like Sturm and Drong and drama and and um and and yeah, you know, we earn some money sometimes and not others, but it's just not connected. We did <laughs> nothing. We did absolutely nothing to earn it. Uh, so that's really, and that's not That's not so unusual. I think if you look into band's histories, if they're willing to tell you really honestly about where their money has come from or hasn't, more often than not, I bet you, there are stories like that. It's like, it fell from the sky, yeah. you know? That's Who what... was I reading about the other day? Oh, I know. Oh, this relates to it. I had never seen the movie Dig. Have you ever got have you guys yeah, watched that? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Anton Brian yeah, Johnstone. I'd ne-
2: yeah. I've never seen it because yeah, again, it was like the 90s. It was my generation. And I kind of <laughs> I always I read the descriptions. I was like, I don't want to relive any of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's not my idea of entertainment. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I'm very involved in this uh, new musicians union that we're trying to build. Yeah. Union of musicians yes. and allied workers. And everyone else in it is much younger by and large. And we were in a meeting and someone quoted something in dig.
3: Mm.
2: And I was like, Oh my God, you know, actually I've never seen it. And they were like, what? You've never seen that? You've got, And they were like, you've got to go watch that. <laughs> yeah. you, it's hilarious. It go is hilarious. It. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, <laughs> okay. So I got off the call and I, I streamed it that night, you know? Mm. And anyway, there's, so there's a, th- I had, so here's how my nineties were so crazy. I had never heard, um, What's the band that that's not Brian Johnson, Masker? Oh, um,
1: uh, uh,
2: the, the band that made a big hit. Oh man, um, uh, the, the, the guy's name's Courtney Taylor. Uh, you know the other one? <laughs> the famous yes, one. I the can't remember one. them either. I never listened yeah. to them. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's what happens. They made a fortune. Yeah, they made an absolute fortune, and so they had one big hit. I mean, they had a really big hit. Dandy Warhols. And Dan, thank you, Dandy yeah. Warhols. Right. Yeah, I'd never listened to them first of all because of the name. Yeah. And then, <laughs> right. you know, and, then, and then in the nineties, we were just like the hell with the whole like major label slick thing, like we're staying so far away from it. Yeah. So I'm watching this movie and the way the movie's constructed, it sort of assumes that you know their hit song. Like how could you have escaped it?
3: Right.
1: But I had have... never
2: I'd never heard it. Same. Same. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I still yeah. don't
1: even know if I have.
2: Yeah. Well, so then afterwards <laughs> I looked it up on Wikipedia because I was like, so what was that hit song that yeah. they had? That-? <laughs> And I look it up and I, and if you look at their history, okay, so they, you know, they sign the major label deal. This is in the movie that like their first video costs like $400,000 or $500,000 for a goddamn video. Mm-hmm. They don't even have a record out, right? Yeah. So obviously so much money is being thrown at them and this and this, and then they have these records and they they don't do as well as they need to. And then they have a hit. How do they have a hit? It was an ad. It was an ad campaign. Fell in their lap. It was ah, it was it was yep. for uh, Vodafone in Europe.
1: That's right. That's in the movie too.
2: Yeah, and yeah. Vodafone bought that song to use. They licensed that that hit song, mm-hmm. and that's when it became a hit. Wow! Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even that it became a hit. It was that all those kids at the Reading Festival had heard the Vodafone commercial. Yeah, and that made their fortune yeah. and saved their career basically it's,
3: yeah that's wild
2: which is the same thing because like the movie is all about like killing yourself to try and make it happen yeah and in the end what made it happen for them was vodafone you know it's like they didn't earn that the, the, i mean in my perspective maybe they think they did
1: the weird thing is there's always been this association that artists are really bad at at making money or they don't care about making money and that there, and there's been um uh, a characterization of artists that, you know, it's uncool to care mm-hmm. about money and to care about mm-hmm. making money. That's been historically true of all the slacker 90s bands and even like the bohemian bands of like the, uh, the 2000, early 2000s. But mm-hmm. now we're talking to people in our orbit here that they actually they want to make a living from their work, they want to mm-hmm. try to at least make it um, uh, viable. You know, so they can buy gear or they can rent a car to go on tour or they can, sure. you know, collaborate with another musician or pay for mastering and all these things that are, you know, the prices continue to go up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an interesting thing. I wanted to hear your thoughts about that, because in your podcast, you talk to this like punk band that mm-hmm. is talking about labor and like mm-hmm. the, the and that's such a cool moment in that show where it's like, yeah, you know, you're, you're realizing that. The, the the struggles of that band are 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 very much like of this present moment.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's the Downtown Boys who's yeah. the band in that scene and and actually Uma to get back to the union that I've been working with a lot, it's Downtown Boys are at the core of starting that union. So it's the same people.
3: That's awesome.
1: And
2: and that's exactly right. They they had this really sophisticated attitude that I had not run into from my generation of bands about thinking about their labor. And they were thinking about compensation in terms of labor. Way more well-read and well-versed in political thinking and leftist thinking than I think we ever were, uh, certainly at that age. And uh, really blew me away, which is that's how that whole episode happened in the podcast. But the funny thing is that I was going to say is that actually, I think bands have always been really good at thinking about money because you absolutely have to. And, um, because even, even if your attitude is like, uh, you know, anti-material, um, you go to the gig and it's like, there's so much cash and there's so much counting involved and there's so much like dividing of the money and you're constantly dealing in these cash exchanges At least this was our our era that, you know, it's really um, it's really like drowning in 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 dollars and cents. I mean, every single gig, Mm -hmm. you're like at least on the back of an envelope making calculations, you know. Yeah. So you really can't ignore it at all. It's just that some people manage to have other people do it for them. (laughs) Um, But that can be very calculatedly um, a power move with regard to money. Uh, so for example, you know, we've known artists who I don't want to name names, but, but this is not an uncommon strategy, which is whenever money comes up, they're like, Oh, don't talk to me about the money. Talk to the manager. Yeah. But the manager is talking to them about the money. You know? And it's like, <laughs> it's actually like a huge money power play to be like, I don't talk about money. Yeah. Um, because of course you, you have to especially if it's like your own musician or it's the opening band, or it's like someone that you actually ha- you owe money to, or you have some kind of agreement with and you're on the other side of, you you can't shirk that responsibility and claim that it's like not being material. It's more just being irresponsible or a jerk, but, but, but it's a really classic attitude to be like, I don't touch money. Mm. And I think that that's a, that's a star move, but it's a way to shift a lot of the issues that money brings up onto other people. And, um, and then those other people have to do all the dirty work and then you get to claim that you never did it. But, and then you, you know, then again, there are many, many stories that you can find at all in uh, stories about bands, about like, you know, people being fired by facts or people being, you know, they had the manager call, not them, or, you know, these people, all these kinds of bad behaviors where um, it's that they had other people do their dirty work. And a lot of that does, often happen in the in the cash as well but but in terms of actual dealing with money it in in my experience it was like from day one you had no choice because it's like you pull up to the club and it's like you know here's your here's your money and Mm. it's handed to one of you and then it's like you all get back in the van it's like who's paying for the pizza you know (laughs) i mean it's just (laughs) at the basic level of like you're constantly dealing with it and then money brings up all these funny exchanges. I don't know if it's still quite as cash a business as it was when we started. It used to be in a hundred percent cash. It is everything.
1: Yeah. I yeah. mean, from our
3: experience.
0: At that yeah, at uh, that point anyway. I mean, if we're talking streaming, I would say all of that is kind of behind mm-hmm. the curtain though. Yeah. Where yeah, yeah. the artists oh, are yeah. completely removed from that. Because if from the get go, I think if artists were more aware of this is the percentage that you'll see uh, mm-hmm. from plays. Maybe we would have gone about this whole streaming thing in a different way from Mm -hmm. the beginning,
2: but it was kind of hidden and,
0: and sold on the idea that more people will hear it. Isn't that good enough for you? Isn't that Mm -hmm. enough? Isn't that what you want out of your art is just to connect to people? Isn't that your Mm -hmm. whole thing? And, uh, that's a tough mindset to change, especially, um, with generations older than us, uh, trying convince them that just because people enjoy making the art doesn't mean that they should do it for free
2: totally yeah that's so that's so important what you said also about if it was less mystifying basically if it was more up front i think we wouldn't be in this trouble that we're in i totally agree Mm -hmm. i think that what has happened with streaming specifically is that music is basically a cash business and it's a very primitive business of of like well, performing is just so simple. It's basically like putting a hat out uh, in glorified ways. <laughs> and then record sales have always been really primitive too. It's like you make something you sell it for more than a cost you make. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not more mysterious than that. Um, but streaming, now that's a whole other thing. It's not a business that has any kind of relationship to cash. It's a capital business that has to do with valuation and all these mysterious kinds of shell games of um, of mystery, mysterious ways of building value without actual value. Like for example, Spotify declares a loss on music mm-hmm. nearly every quarter that they've been in business. I think they've had two quarters that they've said they were in the black on music and otherwise they're in the red. And it's like, well, you know, if you were a band in the red quarter after quarter after quarter, it'd be like, well, maybe this isn't working out guys, you know, you, know, you got to figure something out. Like this is not working out. You got to get another job, but you can still play the music, but you better get another job. And Spotify is, it, it is, they do have another job. Basically they have this, where they're really building value has nothing to do with how music builds value.
3: Yeah, exactly. And how musicians
2: see value. So, yeah. And I do think that has depended on not being transparent on being mystifying. Now the major labels have always pulled a version of that too, or labels in general, when they're when they're behaving badly, Um, which you know to get back to like that movie Dig, where like a Dandy Warhol sign, it's like, okay, we're going to make you a four hundred thousand dollar video before your album's even out, and that's already kind of mystifying because it's like, well, how does that work, you know? And then there's all this kind of like leaps of faith of like, yeah, you just keep keep like building the image, and then the money will flow after that fact, even if there's no music there that anybody actually wants yet, which makes no sense. But of course, the majors especially have always kind of preferred to work in that direction because then they have a lot more control and um, over what they're creating. I mean, it's like they want to create that's like their idea of how it's going to hit. But that still is like way away from the kind of mystification that you get from these tech platforms where it's really like, they don't even explain how they do make their money. How does Spotify make their money? Mm-hmm. We don't really know. Yeah. You know, I mean, we think, I think it's all data. I think it's all about, yeah, just mm-hmm. like Google, but, um, or Facebook, but uh, Spotify is like, oh no, 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 we don't sell our data. And it's like, really? <laughs> well, you're selling something, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it's
1: like, where is it?
3: Mm-hmm. But you know, Where it's, is
1: it? The, what's the weird thing is that when I used, I used to have, conversations with my friends in college about um when spotify and all the and apple music were emerging and we'd be like oh the main there's there's going to be a breaking apart of the mainstream um people are going to be exposed to so much more stuff they're going to be you know able to go on their own adventures and you know all all this underground music will start to have a new life and Mm -hmm. you know part part of that is true it does music Mm -hmm. reaches more people but the mainstream is also much more consolidated than it ever was in a lot of ways because you know that i think it's it's like um the there's only like six artists that occupy like the 99 percent of the streaming you know mm-hmm. and that's crazy and, all, yeah. and then the, all, all the the millions of other artists have the other one percent
2: yeah it's just it's so upside down but i think you're absolutely right that that you know you had reason for that idealism about online access to music and i think it does exist i mean it is as you say, it is true that you can use the platforms to um, to find really remarkable stuff. But I think it's because, in a way, digital is so um, made for that in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, going down a rabbit hole, yeah. That that it it that the the these huge companies that 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 have taken over um, dominate our online access now. They really panic about that. They really don't want you doing that. It's way, way, way counter and too chaotic and too counter to their whole method of making money, which is to consolidate things and make everything um, more narrow choices, like a chain store, like Target. You know, you could say, wow, you've got such a huge big box here. You could put all kinds of crazy stuff in here. (laughs) It's It's like, well, no, that's not exactly what we're gonna use this for you know, we're going to, we're going to like make sure you buy what we've got the best margins on so that we make the best profit here. And yeah, we'll, we'll make sure also that you don't have to go to any other store. So we'll have enough other stuff that you can come in here and then leave with what you need, like a supermarket. Um, you know, you can find almost anything in a supermarket sometimes, but, but the whole, the whole profit margins in like the cornflakes. If you've ever read those articles about, um, I think it's Michael Pollan's book, uh, Does he make that point? Anyway, it's about how like the fresh produce on the outside edge of the supermarket is has the smallest profit margins, or even sometimes it's all a loss leader for the market. Hmm. And it's the aisles in the middle with like the boxes of stuff that's all processed food. That's where their margins are so, so huge.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
2: And so it's kind of like that with online access and Spotify and Apple, where it really is big enough because it's digital, you know, there's no, there's no limit to what can be on there that it could be all. You can go on there and just spend your time listening to really outside stuff, um, but but they don't want you to. And so then now they've like walled it off so that it's harder and harder and harder to find your way uh, to the other, to, to, to the stranger, to the stuff that they're not trying to get you to, to listen to. Do you guys know this whole distinction? Because it, it relates to how we're paid differently for different streams as well, which is interactive versus non-interactive streaming. Mm-mm. Or it's also referred to as passive and active listening. No. Um, so satellite radio or radio in general is passive or non-interactive. And this is now talking in terms of copyright law in the US, um, meaning you just tune in, right? And you get whatever is on the channel. So uh, we have royalties and regulations that pertain to passive listening or non-interactive listening. Um, the streaming platforms came along and said, "You, we are outside that system. We're not going to pay like radio. We're not going to be. We're not going to have to be regulated for content like radio, or um, because we're interactive. We're active listening, and what they mean by that is that the listener goes on and chooses what they want to hear. And they very, very much have um, emphasized that from the beginning." because it gave them such a free hand from existing rules and regulations. The labels were all for it because it meant that they had to negotiate individually with the labels for copyright permission. Because if it's passive listening, it falls under what's called a compulsory license, where you must allow the radio station to play your music. You can't say, I don't want my music on the radio, right? Mm. But the radio also cannot say, well, we're going to decide what to pay you for it. They must pay the same to everybody. And that's, that's, so it's compulsory license that has a statutory royalty rate. So the labels were like, okay, we support this idea that the streaming is neither of these because we want to negotiate a new deal with the platforms. And the labels cut themselves a deal and made money from it like they never had from any other platform. They took ownership for one thing from Spotify and um, they made a fortune. So they did it by insisting that it's active listening, that it's it's uh, interactive and active listening. Now, here's the thing. What did the platforms do? They have moved from day one away from that for the consumer because it leaves way too much choice to the consumer. So when you were in college and hearing about this and feeling idealistic about it, you were thinking about as an interactive, um, active listener. Yeah, yeah. And that is how, exactly how they were set up. It's how they sold themselves to the industry. And it's even still how they're sold to the law. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how they exist as a copyright entity or use of copyright. Um, but the truth is, they have pushed it into the other side as fast as they can. So playlists are, of course, passive, mm-hmm. right? They're mm-hmm. non-interactive. When you log on and it just starts giving you stuff, it's non-interactive. Spotify has the thing uh, um, that, which I... I know about because I've written a little bit about it, so I investigated. Where if you if you do use it interactively, you choose what to hear. At the end of that, it starts playing you stuff without you choosing. Yeah. So it immediately switches you from interactive to non-interactive, from active to passive, and yet um, they still exist. They insist as an interactive platform. See, satellite radio has a whole different royalty structure and governmental control because it's passive and non-interactive. So that's one case that needs to be made about fixing streaming is to make it clear that it's not, or as it's practiced, it's not uh, interactive. See, Bandcamp is, I mean, you go on Bandcamp, you're going to have to mm. make a move. You got to click.
3: Yeah, like <laughs>
2: Bandcamp <laughs> just just doesn't just play you something, yeah. you know? And then when it stops, you've got to now click again. And if you look at how people talk about Bandcamp, sometimes they complain because they're like, it's hard to use, or, you know, I don't know what to listen to. Yeah. Those are the, very complaints that spotify and apple music listened to from their consumers and thought we got to make sure they never say this just like you don't want people walking in the supermarket and be like oh my god it's so big i don't know what to buy mm-hmm. it's like we'll put something on the end cap cap with a big sign and it's on sale and they'll buy that right you know or put it down low for the kid and they'll grab that you know right, right. all those kinds of tricks and that's what they've done with the platform but we should not forget that the reality is that it is I mean, it should be interactive digital is interactive i mean i think if you just return the internet to what we we all use it in a way part of our day this way and it could be way more is to use it as an as an as an interactive tool it's an incredible powerful tool yes and we just have to really protect ourselves i think against this passivity that's just like pushed on us by these corporations yeah corporations have always done that to consumers right yeah. but the, but digital like ramps it up like it's just like way, way, way more powerful. I think in our in our use than than we ever had before. So it's going to take more more kind of pushing back.
1: Well, I mean, we've watched the sunset uh, behind you here.
2: Yeah, oh. yeah. I Should maybe turn on the light. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, it's have kind of beautiful. We're going to have a huge snowstorm tomorrow.
1: Oh, really? Oh, oh yeah. nice. You, like have, you got the Barry Linden lighting.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I'm so glad you know Barry Linden. <laughs> Barry yeah. Lyndon, you know, I saw it first run in the theater. It had an intermission. Oh wow! <laughs> no? Yeah, yeah. I don't was, know. I, I vividly, I went to my, with my parents, and you. Know, I grew up in New York City, and my parents loved film, and they would take yeah. me to see movies like that. And it had an intermission. We like went out in the hall, and <laughs> yeah, that's it awesome. Went back in, yeah, back to.
0: Gotta sell those concessions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's see there um, were some questions we were talking earlier uh and i think you had tweeted too about uh and in your podcast you mentioned mm-hmm. the connection between selling music uh which is an intangible thing really you're selling the technology used mm. to play the music which is a mm-hmm. tangible um and that is true with the the piano auto player yeah yeah and uh you know, record players were initially just pieces of furniture and the records mm-hmm. were made to, as accessories to those pieces mm-hmm. of furniture. And uh, even now, and I hate to give him too much airtime, but Kanye has come out with this yeah, STEM yeah. player. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are all kind of interesting thoughts about uh, the intangible. Does that mean it, because we don't know how to measure the value, does that mean it doesn't really have any? Um, and for young artists, is it? if they're deciding if they're going to devote their life to it at this point um would you recommend it would you recommend Mm -hmm. that they lean further into Mm -hmm. trying to find ways of income through it or to kind of stick it out as
2: yeah i'm so glad i really love the way you framed this because because that is that just does get to the heart of something that's so important to me but is hard to really discuss and get people to listen to in some ways which is I really do sincerely believe that music is free, you know, which is which is part of the context of when I raised that about the technology, because yes, we pay for the the way that we package it and exchange it, but we, you know, when recording first came around, um, nobody thought that music had a, a a value in the sense of like a monetary value, because how could it? It's like what you—it's in the air. It's quite literally in the air. And there's these amazing, if you go back and read like the copyright decisions that were made in the courts at the time, the, the judges actually said, no, you can't charge for this. It's mm. in the air. Mm. You know, and it's like, you don't usually find such metaphysical statements in legal history, but <laughs> but that's like one of those moments where it's like, wow, this judge was far out. But probably, <laughs> the judge was probably just old fashioned and was like, uh, you know, uh, no, what are you talking about? It's like music. You can charge for the sheet music right? That's Mm -hmm. an object Mm -hmm. that has a copyright on it, like any other printed material. And then it has a value of that you can sell and exchange in in the marketplace. But performing that music, you know, in your parlor, how can you say you're going to, that that's something you own? And to me, I think that's just a, a, a truth that we can't get around. Like, you know, the whole 20th century history of recorded music has worked hard to get away from that. But then digital came along and sort of reanimated that whole question because then it took our recordings which had only been impossible to exchange on these physical things and put them back in the air you know online so it's like well you got to deal with this all over again so when napster happened it was like wow look our recordings are free and then everybody's been kind of like trying to deal with that ever since but to me the simplest way to deal with it is to just accept it and say yeah of course it's free It was free to begin with, you know, and and it's like, don't fight that. And the fighting it has taken all these twisted turns that makes it that make things so hard. And ultimately, I think make it harder than ever um, to find our means of exchange and our our true ways of, of charging fairly and having value and making a living. Because it's all built on mystification to get back to the other part of our conversation, where you have to kind of mystify digital to insist that it's not free. Hmm. So, you know, my feeling like with Spotify, as much as I resent what they do, my feeling is like, if they have built this platform and people love it, great, charge for it. But don't pretend that what you're you're charging for is the music, right? Because they Hmm. don't own my music. They don't have the right, really, to sell use of my music. They're taking advantage of the fact that digital is actually free. And then they're creating their own value in between. But if they would just be less mystifying about our if all of us could kind of like let that go and say, okay, the music's free. You want to pay Spotify for their software? Do it. But you're not paying the musician. Mm. Let's just be totally clear about this. You're actually pirating, as some people would consider it, the music because the music is being exchanged without any money. Now, I'm not that against piracy um, in that, again, digital piracy, in my experience, didn't really hurt musicians that I know. The great gun made a whole um, career
0: off of it. Yeah, allowing. exactly.
2: Yeah, allowing it precisely. I'm sure it hurt pop stars and, and major labels hated it because, you know, it was like um, it's like duplicating the products in in, in, uh, in Target or in the supermarket. Um, so they, they needed that like throttle hold on the on the pop market and they felt it was threatened by it. But for the rest of us it really never, I don't think, damaged our our, our way to make a living. Um, but Spotify does. And I think it's because it's more mystifying even than piracy. If they would, piracy is very flat out. It's like, here's the music you didn't pay for. it. If Spotify would just admit that that's what they're doing, you know, then I think we'd, we'd kind of be able to find our way around it and say like, well, how can we pay each other for stuff? Technology is one way. So Kanye, he's selling hardware because people will pay for hardware.
3: Mm.
2: Apple, of course, made all their money not selling tracks on iTunes, but selling iPods and then iPhones. So it was the same thing. I mean, they made it through the hardware. Yeah. Spotify, again, they don't have anything to sell. I mean, they just went to market, I think, this week with this thing to put in your car, which looks so goofy. It just looks basically <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, like when you put your phone on your dashboard, except it's got, I don't know, a suction cup on it or something. <laughs> really like Really, that's the best you can do with all those, all that R and D. Like you came up with a suction cup, you know. But but it's another. It's like an attempt to like, well, we better sell people something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. So, but, and that's not bad. I don't think it's bad when people admit they've got to be looking at what you can exchange. I mean, vinyl, um, cassettes. I mean, it's like it's it's acknowledging that there is an exchange going on and there's value for both sides in you know, it, let's make it work. But digital, I just don't know if it's ever going to work in that way because it ultimately is free. And yeah. I don't think, personally, I don't think we should fight against that. But when I say this to most people in the industry, they really, really want me to shut up. Mm. <laughs> because well, it's 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 just like the worst thing you can say. You well, know?
0: there's just no, I think it's hard to um, figure out what, what the cure is for this. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because we're yeah. in this culture now where... Uh, or a situation where the cost of living is rising Mm -hmm. all the time. So if an artist wants to uh, exist, even Mm -hmm. just in the most basic form, Mm -hmm. there's a certain amount of money that they have to make. And what does that, what advice would you give to an artist who wants their art to remain pure? They Mm -hmm. don't want to, they don't want to sell their souls. They don't want to target what they're creating for something beyond just their own self-expression and human connection, Mm -hmm. how would you recommend that they go about making a living also?
2: Yeah, it's such a deep question. I mean, one thing I would say is that I've seen people, you know, in quotes, sell their soul um, for very little. (laughs) (laughs) As as well as very much, Uh right? Like I've seen that happen at every level. So I don't think it's a question of necessarily quantity. I mean, I think you can really, you and, and everybody knows that like, you know, you might've had a friend on the playground who did you dirt and it wasn't, it wasn't actually based on like a big contract. It might've been like a candy bar or <laughs> a friendship that you double cross somebody out. And so people behave badly at every, at every possible level of options. And then I've also seen people really manage to, um, you know, work the system and, and, and in my, opinion stay really true to their um sense of self and sense of 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 uh friendships and loyalty and kind of uh, dignity and honor and manage to like go the whole route you know so i think that is possible too so i would say first of all separate those things because i think you can you can be really badly behaved um at any point and really well behaved at any point too it may mean sacrifices to to behave better but but that's we we do those all the time
3: Mm.
2: um then the other thing about like, well, how do you go about it? I mean, one thing I would say, and this is partly why I'm organizing with you, Ma, is it really is political. If we're going to say, if, if you follow my logic that, okay, digital really is free, then it's kind of like, well, so how do, what do we fight for? And it's like, well, one way you could look at it is, well, we should fight for universal health care, you know, so that we're not trying to earn from our streams enough to pay our health insurance. Yeah. And it's like, well, what else could happen? Well, you could have a universal, you could have, basic income. Like some countries do do that, you know, and we have a very rich country we live in. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a whole lot of things that could happen to make life better for all of us. Yes. Uh, whether we're making music or not, that would make a huge difference. You know, it's like free childcare. I mean, there's just like Mm -hmm. so many things that we lack in this country in terms of a, of a social, um, guarantees or net or, or, or safety net, and musicians really um, are feeling the lack of them uh, extremely right now um, because we've been out of work from COVID and streaming has gutted our non-performing work. So, you know, we're in a pretty bad way. But if you look around, it's like we're not alone. You know, it's mm-hmm. like people are in a bad way all over the place in all kinds of walks of life. And so to me, you know, one way to think about it might just be common cause with um. Other walks of life, like we are all in a pretty bad situation. And if we raise, if we solve some of those problems, it would actually make work, make living as an artist a lot easier. Um, You know, one way that Naomi and I managed when we were young was we live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And at the time, there was rent control here. And we had a rent control apartment as the first apartment we rented out of college. And um, our rent was so cheap that we could live as musicians. Mm. Now, rent control was then abolished here in Cambridge, tragically to me, in the <laughs> early 90s. Mm. 94, I think it was eliminated, and all the rents went skyrocketing, and of course all the artists like had to leave town. Yeah. Basically, you know?
1: Yep, it's happening and here in Nashville too. Yes. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean rent rent is like, you know, what do you spend your money on? I mean, whether you're an artist or not, what what are your biggest expenses? I mean, it's like rent Healthcare, you know, these are like the things that everybody has to face. So if we could reduce the pressures from those, you'd do a huge amount to make it more possible to live as an artist. Yeah. And then I think, you know, you find ways. I mean, I mean, people are inventive and creative and and will we'll constantly find ways to make it work. Um, but it's very hard to make it work when when rent requires like not just a full-time job, but like a full-time high-paying job or or like three poor poorly paying job. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because then it's just no hope. There's just no hope. Right. So I'd say, you know, organize, think locally, think big, think, think across um parts of society, um, and and work together. And I think that will probably do more even than like fighting Spotify. I mean, as much as I do spend a lot of energy fighting Spotify.
1: I couldn't agree more. I mean that's I think that's a beautiful place to wrap up here because um that that's something that we talk about all the time, and that's mm-hmm. you know you just hit the nail on the head for
2: us. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a, I think that's always been the secret to a lot of great scenes that have happened in the arts. If you kind of poke at their edges, you find out, oh, rent was really cheap right there. Mm-hmm. Then you know,
3: yeah, <laughs> yeah, for and
2: sure. uh, yeah, and then the scenes disappear. You know, I mean, um, a lot of it does depend on really just physical things like that. Yeah, and, and you know, but think creatively that way. We have, I mean, so much progress can be made. I think, um, in our country, looking forward, as soon as we get rid of some of these older white guys who are in power, <laughs> yeah. and they're going to disappear because they're all going to die. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I mean, I keep thinking it's like, uh, you know, the health, the good healthcare that they get is like really prolonging our misery <laughs> yeah. by so yeah. many years, you yeah. know. <laughs> Because these people would have, they, you know, they all lived so badly; they all would have died much younger back in the day. You know, they all would have had dropped dead from heart attacks, yeah. Because they're all like, you know, steak eating. Right. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. They're just so unhealthy. And um, God, they've got these statins driving down their cholesterol, and then they just keep starting wars. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: We're on the eve of one right now. It seems. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah. But um, but they will eventually disappear, and yeah. and then um, I do have tremendous faith in in uh younger people right now and I feel like we are looking ahead to very positive possibilities. Yeah, um, we share but that. But I, I would I would aim them that in that direction.
0: If someone wanted to learn more about the union that you've been talking about, where should mm-hmm. they go for more information on that?
2: Yes, yeah, so the website is unionofmusicians.org, easy to remember unionofmusicians.org and the the acronym we use is UMAW, UMA, uh, or some people say UMA, <laughs> and it's um union of musicians and allied workers and the website has a ton of stuff and we have new member meetings uh fairly regularly and um there are loads of people in there working on many many issues i work on the streaming stuff which if you've looked at my writing or social media you know loud and clear but other people are working on all kinds of other things we have a police abolition committee you know who have been who have been like getting donations of instruments and sending them into the prisons and um that's awesome we have um uh, people working on venue stuff we have people working on labels we have people working on um, health care we've like a lot of and and it's open it's democratic so something that's not happening it's wide open for people to step in and be like let's do this uh, and as i say it's way younger than me i'm the i'm an old guy there um so i really benefit from it but but you should give it a look
1: well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been an my pleasure. Honor.
2: Really, really. Oh, it's such yeah. a really delight to talk to both of you. And I really look forward to when we can come back to. I love Nashville personally. And I mean, the Broadway honky tonk thing is not my scene, as you can imagine. <laughs> but but I do love I love the town. And I, I love can't so wait much.
1: to see you. I haven't seen you guys ever. So, I would yeah, love to we love have that.
2: not had the chance to come down in a while. I've been there for like a speaking gig mm. at um What's the college that that's in um, just outside town? Ah, There's a big music. There's a big music program. Yeah, and Murphysboro. Oh, Murphysboro. Yeah, yeah. Murphysboro. Yeah. Yeah. I was there, and uh, anyway, but um, but yeah, I miss it. I really want to come down. We can't wait to have you. Yes. Well, I'll be there. We'll be there sometime. (laughs)
0: Let us know. Great to meet you both. Great to meet you. Thank you you so much. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Take care.
1: Thanks for listening to Devalued. For more information about our podcast, please visit devalued.show.